There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. Ah, Montag. I knew it. I knew it. Of course, all this. The existence of a secret library was known in high places, but there was no way of getting at it. Only once before have I seen so many books in one place. Like Fahrenheit 451, life is imitating art in Florida, where DeSantis might as well be burning books because he sees them as more dangerous than guns, which he wants people to be able to carry around without a license or even training. Also tonight, the investigation of Donald Trump's hush money payments to an adult film actress moves into a significant new phase. And on the ease of Tyra Nichols' funeral, we're going to expose the serious flaws in police training in America, which led to Nichols' brutal killing by officers sworn to protect the public. We begin tonight in the not-so-free state of Florida, where the in the year 2023, it's probably easier to get a gun than it is to get a history book. Right now, Florida Republicans, led by Governor Ron DeSantis, are trying to push through a bill that would eliminate concealed weapons permits, calling the right to bear arms, quote, central to our freedom. Those same lawmakers have simultaneously cracked down on other freedoms, like children's freedom to read books. The Washington Post is reporting today that school officials in at least two Florida counties, Manatee and Duval, have directed teachers this month to remove or wrap up their own classroom libraries until the books are vetted for appropriateness under state law. Teachers who display or give a student a book deemed unallowed, could face up to five years in prison. You heard that right. Five years in prison for handing a child a book. And in case you're wondering what falls under the umbrella of inappropriate for school children by Florida's standards, activist Brandon Wolf points out that one of the books rejected by Duval County Schools is The Life of Rosa Parks. What DeSantis is doing is intentional in order to peel off Trump's Republican voters and get them on his side ahead of his presidential bid in 2024. He's turning Florida into a right-wing paradise where the focus isn't on healthcare or jobs or taxes or infrastructure, or I don't know, hurricane or flood insurance in one of the most natural disaster-prone states in the country. You know, normal governor stuff. But rather on the right-wing culture wars and nothing but the right-wing culture wars. And he's ticking all the boxes. Not only is he banning books about history and any mention of the existence of gay people from Florida schools, he's barring public high schools from teaching AP African-American studies. He's taking aim at drag performances, even suggesting that he would urge the state's child protective services to investigate parents who take their own kids to one. He's actively trying to ban COVID vaccine mandates and restricting mask rules, while at the same time, calling for probes into supposed wrongdoing linked to the vaccine. And he's doing all of this while making sure that anyone can walk around with a gun, no permit required. It's a right-wing fantasy land 
like Disney World, but in hell. Come to Florida, the meanest place on earth. So much so that even former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, whose supporters tried to overthrow the government down there literally just a couple of weeks ago, is trying to extend his stay in DeSantis Stan, requesting a six-month tourist visa, which would make Bolsonaro the second former president who fomented a violent insurrection currently residing in the state, which tells you all that you need to know. Joining me now is Brandon Wolf, survivor of the Pulse nightclub shooting and press secretary of Equality Florida, Fernand Amandi, political analyst and Democratic pollster, and Mark Whitaker, CBS Sunday morning contributor and author of the forthcoming book, Say It Loud, 1966, the year black power challenged the civil rights movement, which is probably already illegal in Florida. Uh, And Mark, I do actually want to start with you because you wrote a a very interesting piece today, and I just want to read a little bit about it. And you wrote, DeSantis is wrong about black studies. You wrote, as I discovered in reporting a book about the pivotal year in black history that was 1966, when the push for black studies began at what is now San Francisco State University, the original advocates of this idea had something very different in mind. At the time, their focus was on encouraging black people themselves to understand and celebrate their role in the American story, and thus to feel a greater stake in American citizenry at a time of intense racial turmoil. If the AP curriculum that has grown out of that movement seems more designed to tell that story than to reassure white students, that's no accident. But teenagers of all races can benefit from the wider understanding of our history that black studies have helped foster. Um, as, a, as an author and uh, an historian and as a journalist, Mark, what do you make of this intense battle to suppress history that's being led by the Florida governor? Well, you know, DeSantis uh, is suggesting that somehow this curriculum and a lot of the other things he's going after with his so-called Stop Woke uh, movement and crusade is anti-American, that it's turning uh, Floridians and, and young people against each other. But what I point out is that if you go back and you actually look at the origin of, of black studies uh, in the 60s, that actually it's the opposite. I mean, it was a time of intense turmoil, uh, racial violence and so forth. And there were folks like Eldridge Cleaver and the Black Panthers who were out there trying to get uh, blacks to pick up arms. And there was a cultural wing of black power that said, no, 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 we're not interested in that. But what we do want is the right to actually have ourselves reflected uh, in our history. Uh, and that's where it all started. And, and, and when you think about what the alternative was then, it was actually better than more armed violence. It was also an alternative to black, uh, black nationalism of, of earlier eras, Marcus Garvey and so forth, who were saying that, that things were so bad for black people in America that they had to go someplace else. They had to go to Africa. They had to go to the Caribbean. Again, what, uh, what the black power pioneers and, and, and the people who, who first pioneered black studies were saying is, no, 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 uh, we have a right to be here. We want to be here, but we want, um, the right to, you know, have ourselves and our history reflected in, in the broader picture of American history. And of course, right. once that happened, women wanted it. Um, uh, the, you know, uh, other, uh, other, uh, minorities wanted it. And it really changed the way we we thought of our history, and that's the way it really deserves to be taught today. Well, and you know there there are two theories, um, Fernand, as to why 
DeSantis is doing this. Theory number one is that he just sees the lane for himself to get to the right of Trump is to go after white Americans who have the most insecurity about cultural and racial change and to say, don't worry, I'm going to make Florida as Christian white nationalist as possible so that you'll to demonstrate to you that I'm willing to hurt the quote right people. There's a other there's another theory, though. Jamel Bowie writes the following um, in The New York Times. He reminds folks that as a congressman serving three terms from 2013 to 2018, DeSantis was one of the founders of the House Freedom Caucus, DeSantis, which is bedeviling uh, Kevin McCarthy today. DeSantis was an especially fierce opponent of so-called entitlements and other forms of federal aid. He helped lead the effort to shut down the government over funding for the Affordable Care Act in 2013. In the same year, voted to pass a budget res- resolution that would have cut more than $250 billion from Social Security and Medicare over a decade. In 2017, like most Republicans, he voted to re- repeal the Affordable Care Act and cut taxes on corporations, high earners and wealthy donors, and you could go on and on. That that he's doing this because if he wasn't doing culture war stuff and racial provocateurism, he'd actually have to talk about what he's for, which is the same thing that the outlandish Republican crazy caucus is for. Joy, I actually think both theories apply in this case. I mean, sure, there's some performative politics here playing towards the extreme MAGA Republican bases. He intends on running for president in 2024. But there's also a bedrock philosophy that Ron DeSantis and the larger Republican Party are putting on display here in Florida. And I think we need to understand it just not just from what it represents in these particular elementary school classrooms. This is a project in Florida for the Republican MAGA wing to take over all public education all the way from K through 12 and even into the state public university system. You know, there's always been a tradition here in the state of Florida, Joy, that if you didn't necessarily want your children to be exposed to the critical thinking, uh, academic freedom and curriculum that were taught in the public schools, you could put them in private schools and pay for that. But what the Republicans are saying now is they want total control. They do want to ironically indoctrinate. And out of a fascist playbook, it's almost a cliche, they are literally starting with the classroom and working their way all up to the university uh, lecture hall as well. It is a total effort. They are conscientiously making these decisions. In fact, last week, Ron DeSantis appointed an administrator in a private parochial school to be on the Miami-Dade Public School Board. So this is a very intentional act that the Republicans are doing here, which they want to then export because they fundamentally distrust public education and they're trying to take over the system. And Florida is ground zero for that effort, Joy. Right. And, you know, Brenda, it does feel like this is an experiment that's taking place in Florida in whether or not this kind of and you can only call it fascistic attempt to seize control of the culture to say that we're not going to allow the natural evolution toward more openness, toward more understanding between communities. We're going to try to drag it back to the 1950s, whether women, LGBTQ folks, black folks, brown folks like it or not, because on the other hand, they are creating more openness on the gun issue. They're saying you don't even have to get training. You don't even have to get a permit. So on guns, they're saying full permissiveness. But on education, they have teachers and students terrified that they're going to go to jail for reading. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is about control. It's always been about control from the very beginning. It's been about government-mandated conformity. And I think what you're talking about gets to the root of why I was so incensed about this particular book that you mentioned earlier. I, I brought it with me. I hope you don't mind. I have a visual aid tonight. Uh, this book by Kathleen Connors, The Life of Rosa Parks, was one of the dozens of books that Duval County rejected from first grade classrooms. And I had to know what was so egregious about it that they would be willing to make it easier to get a gun than it is to read this book in first grade in Duval County. So I ordered a copy, and here's what I think. Maybe the district objects to the reality that schools and buses were once segregated in this country and wants to hide that from young people. Maybe they're offended by the acknowledgement that Rosa Parks worked for the NAACP, a black civil rights organization. Maybe they hated the timeline of her arrest that led to a case that ultimately dismantled Alabama's racist law. But I think it's very possible that the answer to why this book was deemed inappropriate for first grade in Duval County lies right here on page 20. And it's the last sentence, and I'll read it to you. It says, Rosa's story teaches us a very important lesson that even small actions can have a big impact. Maybe that's the real rub, that suggesting to young people that they can make this world better is just a bridge too far in DeSantis's America. Maybe the idea that this country has never really fulfilled its promise of equality for all people is a, a red line. Perhaps the right wing in Florida are just beyond intent on demanding that future generations accept their role in the status quo, that they're willing to make guns easier to access than this book for first graders, because at the end of the day, as you said, the point is government control. It's DeSantis-fueled censorship. It is government-mandated conformity. And that's why the story of Rosa Parks and her defiance is such a threat to them. And to come back to, to, the, to the, right down the center of my of my uh, list of folks that are here for Dan, you're my numbers guy, because obviously DeSantis has made a calculation that there is enough of a base within the Republican Party that is so terrified of empathy uh, that they are willing to essentially ban it, to say that you can't read. There are books like the, the chi a childhood book about Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that are on some of these ban lists going around the country. They don't want any reading about uh, about civil rights history that essentially doesn't exonerate this country from any racism, even going back to slavery. And we know those are also DeSantis's personal views. When he was a teacher, he taught slavery, essentially taking the South side and saying the South didn't do anything wrong, essentially. At least that's according to his former students. So he must think that there are enough people in the, Democrat, in the Republican base that desperately want that in a presidential primary. Are the numbers there to support that? I mean, sadly, yes. And how do we know that? Because all we need to do is look at who the last Republican nominee was, both in 2020 and 2016. And that was Donald Trump, who did away with the racist dog whistles and replaced the dog whistle with a bullhorn. Joy, I just want you and the audience to think for a second. Imagine if a year or two ago we would have found out that Angela Merkel said, you know what, we're going to stop teaching about the Holocaust in Germany. Or we're going to outlaw anything that has to do with Jewish studies or anything that has to do with the study or the culture of the Jewish community. I think alarm bells would have gone off around the world saying, what is happening there? Well, that's what's happening in Florida now. By, in essence, putting a target, in this case, a metaphorical target on African-American history or African-American pioneers. I think Brandon was very eloquent. The message of the history of those African-Americans that said, hey, you can stand up when the government is acting inappropriately and bring about 
positive progress and change, even if it means changing the established order of things. That is what DeSantis is trying to sell. He is playing that game, not just to the base. He is sending a very dangerous, very dangerous sentiment and signal all around the country in doing that. And I'm worried that we're normalizing this behavior. And by the way, uh, as I as we, we are out of time, but the explanation for how would you know if somebody is a criminal, if they were able to obtain a firearm without any training or permit, the answer from the Florida official was we'll find out if and when they commit a crime. Uh, it sounds like that is who is free in Florida, somebody who wants to get a gun and hurt people with it. I guess, you know, the cruelty is the point. Uh, Brandon Wolf, Fernanda Mondi, Mark Whitaker, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, Donald Trump is up to his eyebrows in legal hot water, but his familiar deny and delay tactics are increasingly facing judicial pushback. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. While Donald Trump is trying to get his so far anemic 2024 presidential campaign off the ground, he's facing multiple legal investigations at both the state and federal level. We're talking about a special counsel looking into the classified documents case and at Trump's role on January 6th, the Georgia probe of his efforts to steal the 2020 election, and the New York Attorney General's probe into his alleged asset valuation fraud. And just today, we're getting our first look at Trump's deposition from last summer in New York Attorney General Letitia James' civil fraud investigation. Trump pleaded the fifth more than 400 times, something, if you remember, he always claimed was only done by the mob or those who were guilty as sin. But now he is singing a different tune. I once asked, if you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? I was asking that question. Now I know the answer to that question. When your family, your company, and all the people in your orbit have become the targets of an unfounded, politically motivated witch hunt, supported by lawyers, prosecutors, and even the fake news media, you really have no choice. Anyone in my position not taking the Fifth Amendment would be a fool, an absolute fool. Also in New York, there's now also a major escalation in the longest running criminal investigation into Trump. Prosecutors have started presenting evidence to a grand jury about the $130,000 hush money payment made just ahead of the 2016 presidential election to adult film star Stormy Daniels, who claimed she slept with Trump. Ew. 
It was Trump's lawyer and fixer at the time, Michael Cohen, who ultimately went to prison in 2018 for actually making the payment to Stormy after testifying that it was all done at the direction of individual number one, Donald Trump, who just happened to reimburse him the exact amount that was paid. $130,000. And joining me now is Charles Coleman Jr., civil rights attorney, former prosecutor, and MSNBC legal analyst. Charles, my friend, thank you for being here. So let's go through this. I want to play for the audience Michael Cohen. This is Michael Cohen, actually, when he testified back in 2019 about whether or not— well, you know what? Let me, let me, let me pause on that for a second. Let's go back to the hush money for just a second. This is Michael Cohen yesterday talking about the hush money payments that he made to Stormy Daniels. And this was on MSNBC yesterday. So take a look. This This investigation that was to be brought by Alvin Bragg's office, previously Cy Vance Jr., is the most detrimental to him, his freedom, his livelihood, his business, etc., because it's the easiest to prove. The checks are the checks. We know a lot. There's recordings which have been released. He's not in the same position where he can deny or lie the way that he will in some of the other matters. The checks are the checks. He can't get out of it. Do you agree? Well, Joy, yes and no. I do think that as far as a paper trail, Michael Cohen is correct in as much as establishing that Donald Trump repaid Michael Cohen $130,000 after Cohen paid out whatever it is that he paid out to Stormy Daniels is relatively straightforward. I think the notion of Michael Cohen's testimony as a witness, however, is where the DA may have some problems. And that's why you hear about the new witness from the inquirer potentially being the linchpin as someone who is being put before the grand jury after having spoken to Bragg's office with additional information. And I think that's important to understand. Michael Cohen, as someone who has been to jail, as someone who was fired from the Trump organization, is going to be painted as a witness with credibility credibility issues and an axe to grind. And so whatever it is that Trump's story is going to be about the $130,000 that he paid to Michael Cohen and its purpose is going to have to be validated somewhere other than Michael Cohen's testimony. And so that's where the importance of the uh, witness from the inquirer comes into play. So yes, the paper trail is clear, but you still need credible witnesses to substantiate what it is that's in the paper trail. Well, I mean, and just to be clear, he the, the amount that he reimbursed him and the was one hundred thirty thousand dollars. The amount Michael Cohen paid to Stormy Daniels was also one hundred thirty thousand dollars. If in fact, and we know Michael Cohen went to prison because this was like a campaign finance violation, right? You're not supposed to pay money that's essentially a campaign contribution to suppress information before an election. If he did that, and Donald Trump reimbursed him the exact same amount of money back, you're saying that. The fact that he went to prison, that's what he went to prison for, was for doing that. How does that hurt his credibility? Well, it hurts his credibility in general because the defense is going to attempt to paint Michael Cohen as someone who has an axe to grind. And they're going to basically say, you haven't sufficiently established that the $130,000 that Donald Trump gave you was for reimbursement of this purpose. And then ultimately, it's going to be up to the jury to decide whether they buy that argument, whether they find that argument to make sense, given the exact amounts of the checks in question. And so that's where Michael Cohen's testimony may be a little dicey for the jury. Mm -hmm. But to his Alvin Bragg is trying to circumvent that by adding additional testimony from witnesses who may have information about the situation. Well, let me really quickly play Michael Cohen testifying in 2019 about Trump inflating his assets. Take a look. To your knowledge, did the president or his company 
ever inflate assets or revenues? Yes. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. And uh, was that done with the president's knowledge or direction? Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction of Mr. Trump. Do you think we need to review his financial statements and his tax returns in order to compare them? Yes. So, Charles, this is the one, um, the case that prompted two New York prosecutors to actually resign from Alvin Bragg's office because he didn't bring a case on this. Do you think that there now is a case? And what do you make of the fact that this case appears to be back? Well, I think it's interesting, Joy. Everything has not come out yet, and that's partially because the grand jury is a secret proceeding, and we may not know what the additional information is that is has led him to this point. For me, up to now, Alvin Bragg has, show, has shown himself to be a very methodical, very, very, very conservative DA in terms of how aggressively he wanted to go after Donald Trump, and which is why these prosecutors ultimately resigned. I do understand that because this is inevitably going to be a very politicized case and one that Alvin Bragg cannot afford to lose. And so at this point, the question becomes, what do you know now that you didn't know then that has prompted you to change your tune to move forward? That remains to be seen. It is possible that upon an indictment, if we do see one, we may learn additional information about the witnesses that have come forward and what information they provided. For those of us who are very cynical that Donald Trump will ever be indicted for any of this, it seems that he seems to be a walking crime scene, but one that doesn't seem to be someone that they can ever pay for it. It, it. Am I wrong in thinking that he seems to have somehow in established some sort of Teflon from the law? No, Joy, I've said for a long time, he's been the proverbial gingerbread man. But for anyone who has been watching his legal woes, what I will note is that if you're looking at how the judicial system is treating Donald Trump, there is a silver lining. Whatever level of deference that he has been afforded by the judiciary in terms of being able to delay things over and over and over again has all but eroded and subsided. Most of the judges in these cases are no longer allowing the same tactics to take place where he continues to kick things down the road because they're not affording him the same liberty that they did when he was a sitting president. So now Donald Trump, the civilian, is having to deal with a legal system much more like regular people than he did when he was a sitting president. That is a silver lining that may lead to some justice. Well, that's why he's running for president. Now, and now we understand why he is, you know, why he's running again. Charles Coleman Jr., thank you very much. Much appreciated. All right, coming up next, George Santos temporarily steps aside from his House committees as he deals with multiple investigations and increasing calls from colleagues and constituents to get out of town and resign. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. 
This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. In the latest installment of The Devolder Files, it seems like each new revelation about George Santos just gets more and more bizarre, like a new Miami Herald view of his campaign spending, which found mysterious discrepancies on things like parking fees, payments listed by the campaign in amounts deemed almost impossible by parking officials, and calls for the serial fabulous to resign after admitting to lying about his education and embellishing his resume. Today, Santos faces at least one consequence. He recused himself from his two committee assignments temporarily after meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I think it was an appropriate decision that until he can clear everything up, he's off of committees right now. Was that something that you asked him in the meeting? We had a discussion, and he, he, he asked me if he could do that, so I think it was the appropriate decision, yes. Kevin, with like the, he tries to do like the fake dignity. Uh, meanwhile, Santos's fellow New York Republican, Elise Stefanik, defended her support and fundraising for Santos. I supported George Santos as the nominee, and the people of his district voted to elect him. Ultimately, voters decide. And uh, I'm very proud that in New York State, we flipped five districts to help deliver us the majority. Uh, and ultimately, voters make this decision about who they elect to Congress. Ah, yes, uh, Elise. Although it would have been ideal if the voters had had the full story of George Santos before they made their decision. But any hopes in a statement, Santos said it's important that he primarily focus on serving his constituents of New York's third district without distraction. As for his constituents, while Republicans like Elise Stefanik insist it's up to the voters, a Newsday Siena poll found that 78 percent of voters in Santos's district, including 71 percent of Republicans, think he should resign. And 63% of those who said they voted for Santos in November said they wouldn't have if they knew what they knew now, while 31% said they still would. And honestly, I'd love to chat with that 31%. It would be fascinating to hear their thoughts. In the meantime, we'll have to wait to see how the science, space, and technology and small business committees will function without noted science and business expert George Devalder Santos, who today once again insisted he's not going anywhere. He told reporters he does not intend to resign and tried to explain himself in an interview with right-wing mini-network OAN. I know that a lot of people want to create this narrative that I, I faked my way to Congress, which is absolutely categorically false. Are you sorry? I've been, I've said I was sorry many times. I've behaved as if I'm sorry. I don't know what, what is asked of me right now when you ask oh, you have not shown remorse or you don't seem to look sorry. I don't know what looking sorry looks like to you, Caitlin. I mean, he didn't fake his way to Congress. He faked his way through life. Up next, the latest on the fallout from the release of video showing Memphis police brutality victim, Memphis police, sorry, brutally beating a young man to death and how police training is a big part of the problem. Stay with us. Police brutality is nothing new. And I already knew, as soon as I seen them photos from him in the hospital, I already knew that they treated my brother like an animal. They beat on him like he was nothing. I don't have to watch the video to see to know that. That was Tyree Nichols' older brother, Jamal Dupree. He went on to say that he felt guilty that he wasn't there to protect his younger brother. And that's where we are in America. Families carry more guilt than the police officers who perpetrate the crime. 
like Dupree said, police brutality is nothing new, but what we as a society are actually going to do about it remains elusive. For Republicans, it's simple. They want more officers, more training, and more money. We should be able to build a coalition around the common ground of, yes, we need more training on de-escalation. Yes, we need more resources and training on the duty to intervene. Yes, we need more grants. And yes, we need the best wearing the badge. There is uh, nobody that dislikes a bad cop more than good cops. Um, so let, let's focus there. Um, but I think what we saw in this video is that we need to take a hard look at uh, training across this nation and make it uh, standardized so that departments, whether you're in middle America, the East or West Coast, uh, we have the same basic training. Not that simple. In fact, experts say simply increasing officer training will not end police violence. My next guest agrees. Katie Sponsler spent 11 years in the Air Force and five years as a law enforcement ranger with the National Park Service, where she attended her third police academy at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Georgia. This weekend, she tweeted some of what she learned in that training, like how she was told to yell, stop resisting and drop your weapon after firing a gun, because bystanders will remember that you said it and their memory will automatically reverse the order of events. She also noted that she was told that de-escalation techniques will get me and my other me and other officers killed. And as a smaller law enforcement officer, I was justified escalating my use of force faster than my colleagues because I was always in danger. So I should use it. She lost her job after questioning that training. And joining me now is Katie Sponsler, Air Force veteran, former National Park Ranger, and advocate for criminal justice reform. Um, Katie, I uh, saw your thread and thought, I have to talk to this lady. Um, the common answer when we see something happen, like what happened to Tyree Nichols, is we need more training. You seem to believe that is not true. Why? I think that there's a huge cultural problem that's exposed. And the more that we go through this training, um, it doesn't make a difference if we don't address those underlying root in culture. And if we are going through de-escalation or crisis intervention training and then turning around in defensive tactics or survival, street survival or firearms training and saying that doesn't work, that's just required by law. We have to do that. It, it doesn't do any good. And so we have to address those issues that are at the root cause of the cultural problem with law enforcement. We, you know, the United States has more police violence against civilians than any similar country. We just outpace everyone else. The United States uh, is kill, uh, police, uh, 1,096 Americans were killed by police uh, last year. In Australia, it was 106. In Germany, it was 20. In the United Kingdom, it was 3. In Canada, it was 89. We just outpace everyone else in terms of police killings. One of the differences, in, in, including between us and the UK, is our police are armed. Uh, and also, they seem to also be armed with information about how to get clear of a, of a criminal offense. Would I be correct in saying that police know, as you kind of hinted in your tweets, that if they just keep saying stop resisting, they are not going to get in trouble. If they just keep yelling commands, essentially accusing the person they're beating up of committing a crime, they know they're going to get off. And if they say, I thought I had a gun, I feared for my life, they know they're clear. I do think that that's actually part of the standardized training curriculum right now, where we are actually, you know, and we present it to law enforcement officers as 
we are teaching you how to um, to let the public know what is going on, what is happening. But it's very clear that every drill, every scenario that you train on over and over again, you say the same things. And if you don't vocalize, if you don't verbalize those same things, uh, regardless of what's going on, then you are, you know, digging back on your training. And it, mm -hmm. it is to be loud for the cameras to make sure that everyone knows uh, what you're doing. And there is an underlying thread of it's really so that when this goes to court, when you go to a review board, they're going to be able to say there are bystanders who witness this. You know, it's always drop your weapon, regardless of what's in their hand. Right. Um, it could be a cell phone, but you yell drop their, your weapon. Yeah. So. That kind of and thing that is actually trained in drills is problematic. The, the, other thing that, the, the other thing that you hinted at is this mentality, this warrior mentality of seeing the public as always threatening to kill you and coming at the public, at least certain people in the public, particularly black and brown folks, as if they are deadly. But police kill far more people than ever hurt them. The statistics are just extremely lopsided. So police killed 1,096 people, and no one should be killed on either side of this, but 60, it's, it's 1,096 to 64. So it's not as if police are constantly being killed. Um, but there, the training makes it seem like every encounter is a deadly one in theory, right? Yes. And I think that we also put, we categorize our training. So we will put uh, behavioral health training in one little category. And we do that for, you know, six hours of a, a you know, 400 hour training. Um, and then we'll have um, use of force training. And that will be a significantly larger force, but that we act like they're two separate things. You never pull your weapon out in a behavioral health training course, and you never use de-escalation training in a use of force uh, scenario. Uh, they, they're trained completely on separate tracks. And I think that leads us to believe that, okay, well, this is what I do, is that use of force thing. Uh, yeah. Because my job, and that is one thing you will hear over and over again, and there are uh, a number of police philosophers that we've taken into um, play here and use over and over again in the United States that are not used uh, around the world. And we, um, my thread brought up Grossman in particular in his street survival courses, uh, but that actually tell us that your job is to go home at night. Your job is, and and it's taken away this idea of duty to care and yep. that our job is to protect the public. Yeah. And this, therefore, the training is not the answer. More money is not the answer. Complete reform is the answer. Katie Sponsler, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here this evening. Coming up next, the emotional toll of police killings, especially as a result of a brutal beating caught on video. We'll be right back. As the nation continues to mourn, Tyree Nichols' funeral will take place tomorrow with Vice President Kamala Harris attending. Tonight, Nichols' family will hold a gathering with Reverend Al Sharpton and their lawyer, Ben Crump, at the Masonic Temple in Memphis, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his final sermon before he was assassinated in April 1968. It's a nod to another moment of deep trauma for the black community. After King's murder, there were people walking around the streets almost in a daze, angry, scared, and traumatized. And more than 50 years later, we're now at a point where, if I'm honest, 
A lot of Americans, but black folk in particular, are emotionally exhausted and constant fear for our families. And it's directly impacting our children. CBS News covered a heartbreaking seminar at a Memphis elementary school trying to help their students process this trauma. The students were told to write about their dreams for a better Memphis. It's sad. We can't trust cops. They're supposed to save us, not hurt us. I think there should be less violence in the city of Memphis. One thing we need is more positivity. And it's black children's mental health that we should be particularly concerned about. Psychiatrist Amanda Calhoun points out that black youth have been in crisis for decades. Black youth suicide rates are rising faster than any other racial ethnic group in America. Black youth ages 13 and younger are twice as likely to die by suicide compared to their white peers. Yet black, black youth are less likely to access and remain in mental health care. Dr. Calhoun joins me now. She's a resident in the Yale University Department of Psychiatry. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Calhoun. And just I know a lot of a lot of black folks I know, probably most of them, uh, are have been particularly traumatized. Some of them can't even watch the video of what happened to Tyree Nichols. But when it's a kid, when it's a child, you know, what can we say to black children? What should we say to them? What are they dealing with knowing about this death? <sighs> well, Joy, I think, you know, it starts with asking kids what they've heard to begin with. I mean, I think as parents, um, the parents I talk to, uh, you know, the parents of my patients, they often think they're shielding their children and they're doing their best. But kids are having these conversations about what's going on in the world and in our country at school. So the first thing is parents and caretakers should reach out to their kids and say, what have you heard about Tyree Nichols? What, what's going on at school? Because you want to make sure that they are not hearing negative um, racist, offensive information. I remember, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, I had black colleagues um, in the hospital who had to leave work and go cry for a few minutes and then go back into work because colleagues were saying racist things about it. And so you want to ask your kids, what are you hearing? What have you seen already on social media? And then start the conversation there because they might already be thinking, uh, and feeling a lot of things about what's going on. And they may know far more than parents think they know. And adults, too. I mean, there's a there's a piece in the Harvard Gazette from 2021 saying unjust police killings, um, the killing of unarmed African-Americans triggers can can trigger days of poor mental health for black people living in that state over the following three months. Um, and it's it's a real problem because you, you I mean, like I said, that it's kids that are traumatized, but also adults, because we all know that any of us could be Tyree Nichols at any moment or George Floyd or Trayvon Martin. Yes. Yes. And I tell adults all the time, give yourself permission to grieve, give yourself permission to feel low mood or irritability or sadness. You know, I tell people when you watch a movie or watch a video, a horrific, uh, film of someone being beaten or even hearing conversations talking about what happened to that young man, you may experience symptoms that you don't even realize are due to your stress. And, you know, one of those things is I mentioned low mood and irritability, but it could be physical symptoms. And I think sometimes we forget that, you know, I talked to multiple people and they said, you know, Dr. Calhoun, I'm having a headache today. And I said, could it be because you're stressed? <laughs> and they said, hmm, maybe so. So a headache, stomach ache, all of these things are actually side effects of stress and of the trauma of viewing something so violent 
And also the added trauma, as you said, of joy, of knowing that as a Black American, it could happen to you, your family member, your friend at any time due to the color of your skin. That you basically put yourself almost in this situation. You can almost see yourself because, you you know, easily you could be Breonna Taylor, you could be any of them. Um, What about the family? You you know, you see these families, and I feel like I couldn't do it. They're so strong. Does working through looking for justice solve some of the pain temporarily? And how do these families cope after it's quiet and they're not in the fight? So I think probably, and I don't want to speak for families, they're somewhat of an adrenaline rush, you know, um, a wanting of justice, which I think is powerful and important and very much healing and therapeutic. But I do think you bring up a good point that after the fight is over, check in with yourself. You know, check in with the way that you're feeling and make sure you continue to recover both mentally and physically after that. Dr. Amanda Calhoun, we're going to invite you back. Thank you so much. Uh, You've helped, uh, I think, a lot of folks tonight. So thank you. Really appreciate you. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.